Uh, we chose Palm Sunday, uh, the beginning of Easter week, to take up our special offering. And uh, this morning, I want to tell you the story uh, about another uh, offering that was taken at the beginning of Easter week. And it's one where Jesus commended a woman for her amazing offering. And he gathered all his disciples around to take note of this, to pay attention to what she had done. And I think we would do well to pay attention too. And so I want to tell you that story. And uh, before I do, let me just give you some context to it, okay? So Palm Sunday is when we remember, of course, that last time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, um, he went knowing that he was going to be killed. The storm clouds were already gathering. And uh, he had already told his disciples that he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And yet he willingly went to give up his life as a ransom for us all. And of course, that's what we're going to be remembering uh, this Good Friday. But as he came into the city, he was welcomed like a king. People were waving their palm branches, throwing them on the ground before him. That's why, of course, it's called Palm uh, Sunday. In fact, I've got a contemporary painting here. Uh, John August Swanson uh, painted this of a kind of more, a more modern-looking city, and you've got uh, soldiers in armor there as uh, Jesus rides on his on the cult into the city. And again, we see uh, people carrying the palm branches and we see the storm clouds uh, gathering. You can find that, by the way, in Notre Dame University. And um, because, you see, the people believed that he was the Messiah uh, who had come to deliver them from their enemies and they believed he was going to come and take his kingdom by force. They They were shouting, Hosanna! As we were singing this morning, Hosanna, which means save us. What they didn't realize, of course, that was his kingdom was built on love. And that the way that he was going to save them was far greater, far more extensive than anything they could have possibly imagined. That he was going to defeat the greatest enemy of all, uh, death itself. And not just for them, but for all mankind, for all who would believe. And so as Jesus came into Jerusalem, he made his way to the temple, which is where they expected him to take up power. Uh, Because, you see, the temple was the hub of the nation. It was the spiritual, political, economic uh, center. It governed their whole way of life. But when Jesus came into the temple, he denounced what he saw there. And there in the large outer court, he drove out the people changing money and he turned over the tables of the money changers and he quoted their prophets saying this temple court is supposed to be the place where people from all the other nations can come and pray. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of thieves. I think it's more exciting preaching up here, you know. I just realized that. I might go for it up here. Almost got carried away there. 
And then in Mark 12, we're told about a series of confrontations. Not yet. Wait for it. Okay, we got the guy's being trained right now. We're going to help him. All right. We're told about a series of confrontations that then took place in the temple between Jesus and the religious rulers who were understandably upset about his actions and they challenged Jesus' authority. Um, In fact, the only real positive dialogue that took place in the temple was when one of the scribes, uh, the scribes were like the teachers of the law, asked Jesus what was the most important commandment. And Jesus replied uh, with this. In verse 30 of Mark 12, okay, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second part of that commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe agreed with him and said, that's right. Uh, You know, it's more important than all the religious activity and sacrifices that are taking place in the temple. And Jesus was impressed with that. He said, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're right on track. Because like Jesus, the scribe understood what the temple was really about. It's about loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. But you see, this scribe wasn't like all the other scribes who were corrupting the temple with their teaching and their practices. And so as Jesus continued to teach the crowd that day, he denounced the scribes. And that's where I want to pick up the story here in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read from verse 38. Okay. Okay. Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Right, they're going to be punished. And then Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Must have been a bit awkward, mustn't it? Imagine if I did that this morning. Imagine that. How would that make you feel? And he must have been pretty close because he could see what they were putting in. It says, many rich people put in large sums and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him. He gathered around. He said to them, look, he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. And then as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, What wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? You see this temple? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus was pronouncing the end 
of the temple as they knew it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this text, this Palm Sunday, help me, I pray, Holy Spirit, in my weakness here this morning, may your power be perfected. And will you lead us all into truth, just as you promised? Help me, help us. Give us ears to hear. Lord Jesus, Lord, we want to know you. We want to become more like you. We want others to know the hope that we have. Lord, will you instruct us here today? We pray for your glory. Amen. So what does Jesus want us to learn from this woman that he is drawing our attention to? Imagine if I said Jesus was watching what you put in the offering box today. He probably was. I mean, he's all-knowing, all-seeing. But, you know, preachers will sometimes use that text to persuade people to give, kind of guilt them into giving. And I hate that kind of preaching. Don't you? I don't think that's what this story is about at all. Jesus isn't drawing attention to this widow so that we'll give more to the offering. That's why I'm preaching this after the offering, right? Though there's still time. (laughs) In my last church, there was a successful businessman, um, an Australian called Andrew, uh, who became a Christian because he couldn't find the offering box. True story. He, had, uh, he was a project manager for the, the best uh, shopping center in London that he built called Blue Water. And his wife dragged him along to our church when they came to settle in London. And um, he was reluctant to go. He wasn't a Christian. Um, because in the, in the previous church that she'd attended, they, it was the kind of church where they preach a sermon on giving before taking up the offering. And he felt pressurized. And he felt that just after his money... And, uh, you know, so he, it put him off. Um, but when he came to our church, there was no offering. I mean, I, I think we had an offering box on a table at the back, which was not easy to find. Remember that, Martin? Right at the back, you know, on the way out, if you could find it. Most people gave through the bank anyway. And we didn't draw attention to the offering because there was another church nearby that was a prosperity church that had a really bad reputation. And so at that time, we were just very sensitive uh, to that. But it meant that Andrew could just relax enough to hear the gospel, and he became a Christian um, and became our most generous giver. I mean, not just in terms of finances, but I mean, in terms of his wholehearted commitment to serve. And that's what the gospel of grace does. But in this story, Jesus is clearly wanting to draw our attention to the offering. So why? What, what is this telling us? You see, like I said, I don't think this is really just about giving. I think this is about the great commandment. I think what Jesus is showing us here is what it looks like to be his disciple. And he does it by making this contrast. On one hand, condemning the scribes, and on the other hand, commending this poor widow, right? So uh, on, on one side, we've got this 
lone, poor, needy woman. And on the other side, there are these powerful religious rulers and all these wealthy, well-to-do people. And Jesus is drawing our attention to this contrast to show his disciples what it means to live by the great commandments. So let's just consider, right, for a minute, let's just consider this poor widow, first of all. In first century Palestine, widows were amongst the poorest and neediest people that you might find. Because back then, women had no rights, and so a widow with no husband to take care of her was really marginalized. And they were the underclass, you see, they had no voice. In fact, I read that the Hebrew word for widow literally means one who is unable to speak. So widows were particularly vulnerable in that society, which is why in the Old Testament, uh, God makes special provision for them. God gave a blueprint for a society where such people would be cared for because God is very concerned about the plights of, of widows along with uh, orphans and outcasts and so on. And, and, and in all of his communications with his people, God made it abundantly clear that they had a responsibility. They had an obligation to take care of these marginalized people. And when they didn't, he would send a prophet to rail on them. In fact, God so identifies with the needy that in Psalm 68, it says this, Psalm 68 verse 5, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Now, where was God's holy dwelling in the time of Jesus? Temple. Which means that all those who represented the temple, the priests and the scribes, if they truly loved God and they loved their neighbors as God had commanded, then they would have taken care of the widows. But what were they doing instead? What did it say in the text? Verse 40, devouring the widows' houses is what they were doing. See, in those days, a Jewish widow had no property rights. So when her husband died, if there was no son that the inheritance could go to and who would take care of his mother, the property would be taken into trust by the temple, which kind of acted as a kind of bank. And in return, the temple administration was then responsible to take care of the widows. But clearly, that wasn't happening. Instead, they were exploiting the widows. Jesus says they were devouring widows' houses. They weren't loving their neighbors. They were making a profit from them. And so by drawing our attention to this poor widow who gave her last coins to the very people who were exploiting her, we can clearly see that Jesus here is exposing the injustice. He's condemning the temple administration. He says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And he pronounces God's judgment that a day was coming when the temple would be destroyed. And that's what this passage is about. So when preachers get up and say, you need to give your money like this woman did, 
Otherwise, God won't bless you. They are as guilty as the priests and scribes in Jesus' day. We might say they're pulpit pimps. Because they'll say, God won't bless you. God can't bless you unless you give sacrificially to this ministry. You sow a faith seed and see what you will get in return. You'll receive a hundredfold. Come, give your dollars. See how God will bless you. Sow your Honda. Receive a Mercedes. Come, everyone. Run to the front. Play your dollars on the stage. That stuff is sickening. I can't watch it on the God channel. I don't watch the God channel anyway. can't watch that stuff. It's no different to the corruption in the temple back then. Exploiting the poor while the leaders get rich. Jesus said that they will receive the greater condemnation. And where is the temple today? Where's the dwelling place of God now? Right here, the church. That's what it says. Ephesians chapter 2. Right? We are now the temple. We're all living stones in this living temple made up of people. This is where God dwells by his spirit. Which is why loving our neighbors, and particularly the poor and the marginalized, should be at the very heart of who we are as the people of God. It's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's why our ministry here is not about making you or I rich. All right? It's about making others rich in God's kingdom. Those who are poor, whether materially poor or spiritually poor. Those who don't know Jesus yet. We want them to know the riches of his grace. Amen? That's why we give. That's why we took up the offering. Because it's enabling us to love our neighbors. Not just in this community, but even in regions beyond. So all the other nations can come to him. Right? They're all our neighbors. That's what it means to be the temple of God. But there's another part here. There's the first part of the great commandments, isn't there? Which is to love God with all our hearts and with our whole lives. And it's what this story is also showing us in the example of this poor widow. You see, there were these rich people, wealthy people, putting large sums of money into the offering box. And these were no doubt wealthy, respectable, uh, well-thought-of people. They had influence and they had power. But in contrast, this poor widow is a nobody, right? She has no influence, no power, no voice, hardly noticeable. Her contribution to society is negligible. She puts in two tiny coins, the smallest coins in circulation. Together they made a penny. What's, what's our equivalent to a penny today? Cent, one cent, the thing you normally throw into that cent tray, not even worthy of keeping. One cent. The exact value is actually irrelevant. What this is telling us is it's a really small, inconsequential amount. It's worthless compared to what else was being put into those offering boxes. Everything about this poor widow is being portrayed here as 
less than. In comparison to the wealthy, powerful, kind of ruling class, she is less than all. And yet Jesus says she gave more than all the rest. Right? In Jesus' estimation, she's not less than. She is more than all the others. Now, why is that? Well, because the exchange rate of heaven looks very different, doesn't it? The way things are viewed in the kingdom of heaven is radically different to how they're viewed in our world. A world that values wealth and position and power. But in God's kingdom, the value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Let me say that again. In God's kingdom, the value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. It didn't really cost the wealthy people to put in these large sums. In fact, it says in verse 44, Mark 12, verse 44 says, they gave out of their abundance or out of their surplus. Because the Greek word that's used there, abundance, is uh, parisos, which means to superabound or to be in excess. In other words, what they gave was superfluous to their needs, to their requirements. You can have it, don't need it. That's what it means. In contrast, this poor widow gave from her poverty, it says, out of her need. She needed every penny that she had and more. And yet she gave everything, it says, all she had to live on. Others gave what they could spare. This woman spared nothing. She spared nothing. In fact, the Greek word there um, in the original text is the word bios, which means life. What it's saying is she gave her life. When it says she gave all she lived, she lived on, what it's actually saying is she gave her life. So why is Jesus drawing our attention to this? Well, because this is what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is a picture of a true disciple, one who gives up their life, one who gives up control and surrenders everything to God, devotes their whole life to him. Jesus called his disciples that day, look, gather around, come, look at this, he says, because he was teaching them something here about what it means to be a disciple. This widow is a model of discipleship. She gave all she had. You know, I think many people want to compartmentalize their lives, don't they? I think we all do it to some degree. You know, we have a compartment for religion, a compartment for our job, a compartment for our family, maybe a secret compartment down here. And we want to keep God in a box where, you know, he can comfort us when we need him, as long as it doesn't interfere too much with our lives, as long as it doesn't make our lives uncomfortable. but you can't do that with the king of the universe. He's not a genie in the bottle. He's the Lord of all. 
He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the supreme being that we will one day have to give an account to. He is the king. And if that's true, the only appropriate response is to bow the knee to him. As I've said before, it's like those knights of old rendering their service to their king. And they would literally bow the knee and they would offer their swords to their king. And, And in doing so, they were offering their king their life, their service, because they'd offer the sword hilt first. They were surrendering their lives, putting their lives in the hand of their king. They're at the mercy of their king, and they're saying, my sword, my life, my liege. And that's what it means when we bow the knee to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. We can't just give a part of ourselves. Either God is supremely worthy of us giving our lives to, or why bother at all? Right? Can't be half-hearted. When you become a Christian, you're not just adding Jesus to your life. No, he becomes your life. You give up your life. You bury it, actually, in baptism. That's what baptism represents. You're you're putting yourself into that watery grave, burying yourself there, just as Jesus was buried, it says in Romans 6. And then as you come up out of the water, it's to live a new life, eternal life with him. He is your life now. Have you done that yet? Have you been baptized to show that you belong to Jesus? Have you given him your life? We're going to be baptizing people here Good Friday. I can't think of a better time to be baptized. Because it's identifying with Christ in his death and burial. That's what we're remembering. Come and be baptized on Good Friday. Come and be baptized in Christ. Go down with him on Good Friday. Because you'll come up with him to live forever. Have you been baptized yet? If you want to respond to him today, you want to give your life to Jesus today, uh, let us know. There's communications cards on these two tables and pens. Just fill out your details and check that box that says, I want to be baptized. Or come and talk to me afterwards, okay? And we can chat about it. You know how easy it would have been for this widow to have just put in one of her coins? Think about it. Think about it. She had two coins. How easy would it have been? If she just put in one of her coins, half of all she had, we would have been impressed. Right? But that's not the point, is it? Because this isn't about the money. This is about our life. The commentaries all say it's significant that she had two coins and that she put both in everything. Because you see, unlike the duplicity of the scribes, this woman is expressing wholehearted devotion. Most people would have been impressed with all the large amounts that others were putting into those offering boxes because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that's what Jesus was saying here. He was seeing wholehearted devotion. He was seeing an undivided heart. She kept nothing back. Now, what about us? What about our coins? 
our lives. See, I suspect that many of us here would want to hold on to one of those coins. We're fearful to actually give up everything because it means we give up control. Most people spend their lives trying to remain in control. Right? We want to retain control of our lives and circumstances. Mostly because of fear. It's self-preservation, isn't it? And it's something we all do, if we're honest. We all do this to some degree. Because it can be a scary world out there. I mean, who's going to take care of me if I don't? Right? Who's going to take care of my interests, my needs? I don't leave that to chance. I don't take that risk. I need to be in control. So when we say, Jesus, come and be Lord of my life, what do we really mean by that? Do we really trust him with our lives? With our money? Or do we want to keep hold of one of those coins, kind of like insurance? You know, we want to make sure we've got things covered. We still want to retain some control here. And yet the reality is we have as much control over our lives as a poor widow with less than a cent. That poor widow is a picture of every one of us here. Because we are all much more vulnerable than we realize. We're all subject to forces beyond our control. A few years ago, Emma and I got a call that our son Jordan had been hit by a car outside Portsmouth High. Every parent's worst nightmare. It was just around the corner from where we lived at the time. I remember, because they'd stopped the traffic, we had to get out of the car and just run. And we found him there. And he was already in a stretcher. He was unconscious, neck in a brace, being put into an ambulance. Thankfully and miraculously, he, he got by with just bumps and bruises. Praise God. But you know, a parent's response to that might be to keep tighter control of their children because of fear. That's what fear does. It causes us to cling to our half cent. So what are you clinging to today? Maybe it's a relationship. And you know it's unhealthy. But you don't want to say no to them. Because you fear losing them. Because you fear being alone. Or maybe it's your job. And you don't want to say no to your boss. Even though he's asking you to do unethical things. Because you fear the outcome. Maybe it is money. Maybe you felt prompted to give a certain amount to the offering and you held back. Or maybe God's been speaking to you about tithing, about trusting him and, and, and having faith, and, but you've held back from doing that. Because you were worried, you see. That what, what if, supposing, you know? Or maybe you're not sure about asking a friend to our Easter service next week. 
because you're worried about what they might think. What's God asking you to trust him with? Your kids, your money, your job, your relationships, your life. None of these things are ours. You know, they're here today and gone tomorrow. And whenever we try to kind of hold on to them, the, high, the tighter we kind of try to grip them, the more likely we are to lose them. Jesus said, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. This summer, uh, we're coming up to the 160th anniversary um, of the summer of 1859. Remember that? And it was when a French stunt artist called Charles Blondin, and I know many of you would have heard the story, I guess the French would be Blondin, Charles Blondin, um, when he stretched a tightrope across the Niagara Gorge. Now, I've told this story so many times because it's such a great story. I think we got a photo of, uh, of it. And each week through that summer, he, his stunts would get more and more daring as he was gathering more people. So he'd, walk, he'd take a wheelbarrow across, and, or he would go blindfold. He'd do a somersault. On one occasion, he took a wood stove into the middle of the tightrope, made himself some eggs, ate it, and then went across. Every week he tried to do something crazy, something more daring. But he was getting to the end of the summer. He wanted a big finale. He came up with an idea. He put an advert in the papers asking who would be prepared to let him carry them on his back across the tightrope. And actually, he got a lot of people applying. And they reckon 100,000 people came to watch this spectacle. <coughs> and on the day, this uh, Blondin, he, he carried a 200-pound sack on his back to prove that he could do it. And he came back, and these people who had applied were, were lined up there. And he, and he went down the line, and one by one, he said, do you believe I can do this? They said, absolutely, we believe. We believe you can do this. He went down the line again. He said, will you let me take you across on my back? And they said, no way. Are you mad? <laughs> You're crazy. You're never going to do that. <laughs> one after one, they all said, no way. Right? Not one of them would do it. You see, it's one thing to say, I believe. It's quite another to put you know, offer up your life. But Blondin had to find someone. All these people had come to watch. So he said to his manager, Harry, he said, Harry, you're going to have to do it. (laughs) And Harry was petrified. But he knew he had to. So Harry gets on Blondin's back and they make their way across this tightrope, across the gorge. And, but they got into problems about halfway across. Because what would happen is Blondin would sway a bit to keep his balance. As tightrope walkers do, they'll sway. But Harry, who's petrified, tries to compensate by leaning in the other direction. And the newspaper accounts said that they were literally about to fall. And then over the noise of the Niagara, Blondin shouts out, Harry, 
If we're going to get to the other side, you must become a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. You've got to trust me. Become one with me completely and sway with me. Don't try to do anything yourself. Otherwise, we will die. So Harry did what he said. They safely made it across to the other side. Can you see, Blondin was saying, if you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. But if you lose yourself to me, if you will trust me, then you'll be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus said. That's what Jesus says to every one of us. And to anyone who would follow him, he says, give me your life. Let me carry you. Are you willing to do that today? Are you willing to do that? Maybe you've said, yeah, I believe. Well, that's one thing. But are you willing to trust him with your life? How can we know that we can trust him? How can we love him with all our hearts and hold nothing back? What's going to cast out that fear, you see, that causes us to cling on to our lives so tightly? Well, the answer, of course, is love. Only perfect love will cast out fear. And where does that love come from? Let's read 1 John chapter 4. It says this, Love comes from God. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what I want to suggest to you today is that is what this poor widow is pointing us to. When she gave her coin, she gave her life. And that's exactly what Jesus did, except that he did it for us. He did it for each one of us. When someone makes a great sacrifice, we may think it's a noble deed. When someone does it for another person, we think, how heroic. But when someone sacrifices their very life for you, even though you may never have cared about them, even though you may be totally undeserving, and you realize that they did it because they loved you with an everlasting love, then that changes things. Because you don't think how noble. You don't think, oh, how heroic. You don't just think well of them. No, you love them. You love them. You give your heart to them, your devotion, your life. And that's what Jesus did for you and I. That's what we remember at Easter. That Jesus became poor. Right? Everything was stripped away. Stripped of everything. He was exploited. He was devoured. But he willingly surrendered everything. He held nothing back. Gave his whole life as an offering to pay the penalty for all of our sin and shame. And when you can see that, and that he did it gladly because he loves you, and that having loved you, he will love you to the end, 
all the way to heaven, then it will set you free from the fear that controls you because you will know that you can trust God. You will know. You can trust him with your life, with your money, with your relationships, with everything. You happily give him your two coins. Happily. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 